So I, I brought a, uh, a talk on koan that I thought I would uh, present to you. But before I do that, um, in, uh, a few things. Uh, first of all, uh, I didn't say this, but somebody in the break uh, who studies in the Kwanum school of Korean Zen, which does koan study, spoke to me. And he's not here, right? I don't think he's here now at, the, at this moment. But he was saying that... Um, so I, I should mention that what I was saying in my remarks before really had to do with the koan system created in China, transmitted to Japan, transmitted to the West through the Japanese lineages. But there's also uh, the Kwanum school. It's a big school. And th- that system of koan study was transmitted from China to Korea, didn't go through these developments in Japan. So it's different, and I don't know about that system. And he was saying in the break that uh, when we were talking about, uh, I think you were asking about Vipassana meditation, and I was saying that as far as I'm concerned, uh, more or less it's quite similar uh, to Zen meditation, uh, particularly in our school. His remark was, well, actually, it's quite different from the way that koan study is done in the Kwanum school, which I'm sure is true, but I don't know. So I was, if he were here, I would ask him to say something more about the, uh, his practice in the Kwanum school. But, and then I know uh, Michael uh, introduced himself in the break also and says that he studies with uh, John Tarrant, who's a koan teacher uh, locally. And uh, not to put you on the spot, Michael, and anybody else who may be practicing in one of the lineages that, that um, uses koans uh, as a primary vehicle for study, if you and or somebody else who would like to speak up uh, and say something about your practice, that would probably be a, a, a good thing. So go ahead if you feel like it. You don't have to, but if you feel like it. Okay, okay. Okay. Yeah. Anybody, anybody else uh, want to say something? Who does go and study or not? <laughs> Actually, you could say anybody wants to say anything or raise a question is fine. Anything else? Mm-hmm. Just as a personalized experience for those of us who haven't done it, would it be at some point be possible to discuss what people experienced when you led the first uh, guided meditation with the koan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we, well, I was thinking this afternoon that I would do the same thing. So maybe in the afternoon, uh, having experienced it twice, we have twice as many things to... <laughs> yes, uh, I once uh, did a presentation on koans uh, at Columbia University. And uh, it was, I'll never forget that. It was one of the worst experiences I ever had, actually. <laughs> because uh, there was some uh, guy there who came to the talk who was quite an expert on koan study. Uh, he had been studying, you know, going through it for 30 years. And, uh, and he studied in a Chinese lineage about which I was not speaking much. And he also was quite pissed off about koan study and his experiences with this Chinese lineage. So I gave my little talk, which was, you know, quite not too 
academically sound or <laughs> thorough and, you know, just like talking like I'm talking here. And after the talk was over, he kind of stood up to his full height and laid into me. He must have gone on for 15 minutes where he uh, detailed every mistaken notion that I had presented in my talk <laughs> and explained, you know, what was wrong with it and why it was inaccurate and so forth and so on. And, uh, and it was quite, it was actually, it was a little embarrassing, you know, because uh, I was sitting there thinking to myself, you know, now what am I going to do? I, this never happened to me before or since. So I was thinking, you know, what am I going to do now? And on the one hand, I thought, well, you know, probably this is really good. People are learning things from this. And if he knows more about it than I do, you know, more power to him. I was, you please come and sit in the teacher seat and I'll listen, you know. But then I was looking around and I could see this was not the right thing to do because he was kind of aggressive and sort of mean-spirited and which I didn't mind, but I could see that it was a very embarrassing situation for everybody in the room. You know what I mean? It was not like, in other words, if I had done that, I think the the people in the room toward whom I figured out, as I'm thinking about this while I'm listening to his harangue, that that I had a responsibility to those people, that if I did that and gave the floor entirely over to him, the people would have felt cheated or somehow railroaded, and then they'd be more mad at him and maybe mad at me. I did have responsibility. They were coming to hear my presentation. So I ended up having to say to him something like, in the middle of this thing, I finally had to say to him, you have to stop talking now. (laughs) 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 Which was not that easy to do because he was not too dissuaded, you know, to stop talking. I said, you have to stop talking now because it's not appropriate you know, for you to continue talking because this is a presentation that I'm giving and people have come to hear it and I appreciate your, you know, there's, it is appropriate for you to make comments and critiques and so forth, but not for this long and not with this kind of degree of passion. So uh, we had a long exchange about this, but the thing that was nice about it actually and, and really interesting was that one of our sons, who at the time was going to Columbia, was there. And he was just in the audience, you know, this fella didn't know uh, that it was our son. And he, in this unbelievably skillful and wonderful way, he was like 26, our son, he sort of stepped into the conversation and managed to create a kind of calm and I don't know what, you know, way of sort of bridging the gap, you know, and settling things and all that. And, and listening to my son, this man finally calmed down. It's kind of great, actually. And then the funny thing is that, that the really hilarious part of it was that after it was all over, I, I, you know, sought the guy out and I wanted to find out, you know, where did he study and what was his background and so forth. And it turned out to my complete astonishment, that uh, he was for many years uh, the boyfriend of a very close friend of mine who, uh, you know, I practice in Mexico and there's a group in Mexico and she is sort of the, 
person who runs the Mexican group. So I know her really well over many, many years' time. And over that time, was hearing about her boyfriend in New York. <laughs> this crazy, wild guy. And it turns out that this was the guy, you know. It was quite, quite astonishing. Uh, yeah, and then afterward, as I was talking to him, afterward, it was very hard to get away and then go about my business after that. He wanted to talk more and more and more, and he was very passionate about all this. So I guess koans have a power when you... Uh, Get into it. It's very pow- powerful. But that was a yeah, that was a bad experience. I'm hoping uh, not to repeat that again too many times today or any other any other day. <laughs> but you never know. It just goes to show you. You know, you never know. But they don't necessarily lead to awareness. <laughs> Those encounters. Here's this guy studying for thirty years. Yeah. Right. Of well, well, seemingly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, uh, so then, if there are no more, there's no no more old business or any new business, I'll (laughs) go on to uh, give my talk on uh, case number 37 from the Wuman Guan, a pretty pretty well-known koan. Now, first of all, uh, I want to introduce this by saying that. So I have been uh, delivering talks on Cohen's for a long time and I've given many, many hundreds and hundreds of such talks. And I'm always giving them uh, in the context, well, for many years I gave them in the context of a Zen center where I was speaking to people who were, while we we weren't working on a formal Cohen study with a curriculum, we were residential Zen practitioners living 24 hour a day formal Zen lives in temples. So, uh, and my purpose in giving those talks for all those years was to orient students to the tradition and to the basic teachings of the tradition which are included, which are contained in the koans. I also, you know, the old Zen masters are kind of like family members. They're the ancestors. So I also, my other purpose was to orient them to who these people were and what their lives were like and because they were, you know, the people that we looked to in our tradition. So that was another purpose I had. But when I started, uh, you know, I retired as abbot of Zen Center about five years ago and I started uh, a small sangha called the Everyday Zen Foundation. And uh, now I work entirely with people who are not residents of Zen Centers, but who, like all of you probably, are living... Uh, in the world, and, but practicing with a lot of seriousness and commitment and intensity. So I found that when I was speaking to that audience, uh, I was speaking about the koans in yet another way. Uh, and more or less, to put it in a nutshell, speaking about the koans in the spirit of the Genjo koan that I was speaking about earlier. In other words, my effort here is to try... I'm not speaking in a context where it's a retreat and I'm expecting the students to come and present answers to koans, and I ring the bell, and so forth and so on. I'm not speaking in that context. In that context, you want to only speak in such a way as to explain nothing and give the students encouragement and support to find their own approach to the koan and present it. That's not what I'm doing in these talks. In these talks, uh, I want you, the, the listener, 
to, uh, to understand something about our practice based on the koan. Something that I hope, I'm trying, it's a kind of a delicate matter, you know, because, of course, anything one understands and can point to is already not quite right. So, I, on the one hand, I want to uh, offer some understanding that is useful, and on the other hand, not too much uh, reduce the koan to some psychological or even Buddhist point, because the koans really uh, kind of resist those kind of reductions. So I don't know whether I'm successful in doing that in these talks, but that's the kind of effort that I'm making. So in a sense, the talks are quite traditional, but in another sense, uh, they're, they're unusual. And I think if I ever uh, publish these talks in, in a book form, which maybe that would happen, I don't know if anybody would be interested to publish them, but if I ever did, it would, I don't know what people would think of them. You know, Zen teachers would either think that they're normal or they might think that they're completely off base or well, I don't know so or, or that fellow from Colombia might read it and come and assassinate me or something I don't know. <laughs> anyway so having said that this is uh, uh, my talk on uh, woman Guan case 37 the oak tree in the courtyard and the, the way usually so the the, the woman Guan has uh, is a book that has uh, 48 Zen stories. For each story, there is a, the case, you know, the public case is stated. And then uh, the collector of the stories, uh, Master Wumen, a Chinese, I think 13th century Chinese master, he writes a poem about the story and offers a very brief com- prose commentary, a sentence or two usually. So the format of the talk then is to state the case, give woman's prose comment, give woman's verse comment, and then the, whoever's giving the talk comments on all of those things or whatever ones of those three parts you want to. So, so the, that's the format. And uh, usually in, in Japanese Zen, these the case comment and poem are read in a very formal style. And I I also should say, very important, is that the students listening to the talk are listening to the talk in meditation practice. In other words, they're meditating on the talk as you meditate on a koan. So that it's it's actually disallowed to take notes and to think that you're learning something about the, so anything at all. You're just sitting there meditating on the koan. So, I invite any of you to practice with my talk in that way if you like. Also, uh, it is perfectly all right with me if you take notes or, you know, think about the koan and relax in your sitting, whatever you, whatever you would like to do is okay. But just to let you know the usual way that this is done. Okay, so Woman Guan 37, uh, the case. A monk asked Zhao Zhou, what is the living meaning of Zen? Zhao Zhou replied, the oak tree in the courtyard. Woman's comment. If you can see intimately into this response, there is no Shakyamuni Buddha in the past and no Maitreya Buddha in the future. Woman's poem. Words do not explain. 
Speech does not signify. If you take up words, you're done for. If you ponder over phrases, you're lost. So, uh, there are various translations of the woman Guan that exist in English, at least three or four that I know of. And uh, here, in translating uh, the monk's question as, what is the living meaning of Zen? I'm following the translation of Thomas Cleary. Literally, the question is not, what is the living meaning of Zen? The question in the original is literally, what is the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the West? And uh, Bodhidharma was the founder of Zen, who was a Central Asian monk who came to China, legendarily sort of the first person to bring the meditation practice that was to be developed into Zen from uh, Central Asia, from India through Central Asia. And the story about Bodhidharma is that, he, that he's summoned to the court of the emperor. They hear, the emperor hears about Bodhidharma and summons him to the, to the court and asks him about Buddhism as if Buddhism had a doctrine and were a religion. And Bodhidharma basically walks away. He doesn't answer any questions. He just says, you know, don't know. And walks away and goes away from the court to the hinterlands where he spends nine years in meditation practice facing a wall. So Bodhidharma uh, is the epitome of the tough, uncompromising Zen master for whom uh, conventional religious sensibilities are useless, who casts off everything and meditates persistently in search of and in demonstration of the truth. So that the question, why did Bodhidharma come from the West? Why did Bodhidharma come to spread Zen, you know, means what is the meaning of Zen or what is the living meaning of Zen? Uh, when Dogen, who's the founder of our uh, lineage of Zen in Japan and a great uh, Zen master, very, very well, very important Zen master, when Dogen asks his teacher, uh, what did Bodhidharma bring from China, bring from Asia to China, Central Asia to China, that was not already contained in Buddhism, before, what, what did he add? Uh, Rujing, uh, Dogen's teacher, and this is a, a paraphrase, basically said to Zogen, Dogen, it's not that Bodhidharma brought something that wasn't already contained in the teachings. It's just that, uh, and he gives this image, just like a king entering a country uh, where everything in the country is already there and the, you know, the bridges are built and the industries are going. But when the king enters, there's true sovereignty in the country. And it all kind of comes alive and coheres as a nation. So Bodhidharma was like that. He, he didn't bring anything that's not in Buddhism, but he inspired and woke up <clears throat> and enlivened, brought to life what was already there. So that's why the question, why did Bodhidharma come from the West, is you know, well translated as, what is the living meaning of Zen? And this is you know, our purpose in looking 
at these koans is not to become experts in koans or experts in Zen, but to know for ourselves what is the living meaning of Zen. So this Zhaozhou uh, <coughs> who's mentioned in the case is the same Zhaozhou in the Mu koan, same, same person. And he's one of the uh, teachers mentioned most often throughout the koan literature. And uh, he's a wonderful, I, I really like Zhaozhou. He's, he's a great uh, Zen, Zen teacher. And although you might not see this at first, the more you kind of read about Zhaozhou and experience his koan, his, his sort of style and feeling is almost the opposite of Bodhidharma's. Zhaozhou's feeling is very simple, very plain, very ordinary, it's very patient, very quiet. Uh, in one koan, a student, he became famous, you know, and one student goes to see the famous Zhaozhou, and Zhaozhou is kind of there, and he says, what? You know, this is the famous Zhaozhou? I thought I came to see a great Zen master, and I see this? One of the koans talks about that exchange, because apparently Zhaozhou was very, very low-key, you know, and Suzuki Roshi, who also was very low-key, really liked Zhaozhou as a teacher. Uh, although the uh, Zen koan mu sounds like, you know, this very profound Zen thing, the reality is that somebody asked, uh, does the dog have Buddha nature? And Zhaozhou said, no. <laughs> you know, that was, which is what mu, now the koan has come to mean something different, but that dialogue is actually longer than just that one line. And you get, you get a f- more of a flavor for the real exchange. He's also the Zen master who, when someone said, you know, uh, please give me some Zen instructions, he says, did you eat yet? Y- yes. Please then clean your bowls. So this was the kind of very simple uh, teaching uh, of Zhaozhou. But if you surround his answers with enough Zen koan mystique, they can seem very blistering and unconventional. But if you think about them a little bit, you realize they're quite innocuous. It's like, you know, what is he saying anything at all here? And for me, their, their ordinariness is what makes them powerful. Zhaozhou, uh, I think, is a person who is very aware of who he is and what he's doing and saying. <clears throat> he prefers not to create some very special, spectacular thing called Zen but just to live life and point to life all the time. He brings up the ordinary world in ordinary terms, but in doing so, he's also bringing up the whole of the truth, which is contained in the ordinary world completely, just as it is. And this is exactly his great power as a Zen teacher, I think. And it's his special reason why I think Zhaozhou is especially relevant uh, to us. And here he is, in this case, doing that again. What's the living meaning of Zen? Oh, it's the oak tree in the courtyard. Maybe you should look at that oak tree sometime. Uh, I love trees myself, and I think one could do worse, uh, as Frost said, than to swing in birches, or worse than to study uh, Zen or life with a tree as your teacher. And I recommend this. Uh, go and study Zen with a tree. Sit under a tree or stand next to a tree for some period of time or walk quietly and mindfully among trees and I think you'll learn a lot about your life. Uh, people joke about tree huggers, but maybe 
you should go hug a tree sometime and see how you feel. I think you'll see that uh, you receive something very powerful from the tree. When I first started practicing Zen many years ago, uh, I moved to California and I was lucky enough, uh, it was a very troubled, dark time in my life and in the, in the world, in the life of the country. It was in the midst of the Vietnam uh, crisis. And so there was a lot of pain abroad. And I was lucky enough to find a place to live in the middle of a redwood forest, just all by myself in a cabin. And every day I would go out and I would walk in the redwood trees and I would sit under a redwood tree and I would look up the trunk past the canopy to the little circle of sky overhead. And it was really important experience for me. A few months ago, uh, my wife and I went into a redwood forest for a hike. I, I don't really count uh, Muir Woods. We live close to Muir Woods, but that doesn't kind of count as a redwood forest because it's mostly a forest of people. <laughs> <coughs> Although there are beautiful redwood trees there, I don't mean to disrespect them, but it's not the same thing as walking through a redwood forest that's just a path through the forest instead of a big, huge, you know, wooden walkway with people walking by you with their cameras speaking in every language uh, known. Anyway, we went to a quiet redwood forest for a hike and I felt, again, you know, as I felt 35 years ago, the quiet and the dignified feeling of the trees, uh, especially redwoods, uh, more than other trees, but not only redwoods. I also remember hiking in the Sierras, as I'm sure many of you have done, and seeing white pine trees or very small trees that grow high up above timberline. And these are also moving trees, noble creatures. Uh, they thrive on hardship and they endure and they have quite a presence, even though they're not large trees. Uh, the Buddha's practice involved trees quite a bit. Buddha's mother, according to legend, gave the birth to the Buddha while leaning against a tree. And we all remember that on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, he sat sheltered by a tree. And that uh, when he passed into Parinirvana, he lay down between twin sala trees, the text says. The word tree comes from the same root word as the word trust. And that's what I love about trees. They seem to be the very embodiment of trust, solidity, faithfulness, dignity, patience. Cognate words with this word tree are words that include truth and truce and pledge. So I really recommend the practice of being with trees and of appreciating the possible depth that can be found in uh, quietly being close to a tree. Uh, the dialogue that's reported here uh, is only part of the whole story. Uh, Muman, Master Muman often did that, just take a part of a short story, a line or two, and put it in That's his style in this book. Um, in quoting just a bit of the dialogue and commenting on it in the way he comments on it, Master Muman is, of course, creating his own Master Zhaozhou, uh, just as, I guess, I'm also creating my own Master Zhaozhou, and as we all do 
in our study, create our own master, Zhao Zhao. So, uh, this is the full dialogue. The monk says, what is the meaning of Bodhidharmas coming from the West? And Zhao Zhao says, the oak tree in the courtyard. And the, the monk says, teacher, please don't teach me about outside things. I am asking about inner truth. And Zhao Zhao says, I do not teach you about outside things. And the monk says, what is the meaning of bodhidharmas coming from the West? And Jaja says, the oak tree in the courtyard. So hearing the whole dialogue, I think, gives us a better sense of Jaja's meaning and points to one of the essential truths that our uh, tradition is constantly pointing at. Experience is experience. Whatever we experience is a moment of experience. It's always limited and it's always absolutely complete, which is to say unlimited at the same time. If I say I see something or I hear something, maybe you already discovered this in in the practice we did this morning. If I say I hear something or I see something, this is not exactly true. What's really happening is that there is a sight support or a sound support that merges with the eye or the ear to produce a moment of consciousness, a moment of lived experience. Then later on, a split second later, we say, I saw that redwood tree, I heard that sound. When I say that, when I think that, when I act on that information, I am living then in a conceptual universe, a day late and a dollar short, a split second always behind the immediacy of my experience. I, tree, and see are all fundamentally alienating concepts I have created through my human consciousness. And and these experiences, these conceptualizations uh, obscure and cover over the immediacy of my experience. Awakened experience or immediate, intimate experience is the full and profound experience of just letting seeing see, seeing, and hearing hear, hearing. Just being the seeing, being the hearing. At that moment, when you can really be the sound, be the experience completely, there's no time, there's no space, there's no self, there's no other, there's just what is full and complete. And this is what Master Wu Men is talking about in his comment when he says, if you can see intimately into this response, there is no Shakyamuni Buddha and no Maitreya Buddha in the future. And that's why Dogen's 
Genjo Koen makes sense. Because our lives, our ordinary lives of seeing, hearing, thinking, feeling, smelling, tasting, touching, perception by perception, experience by experience, thought by thought, feeling by feeling, bring up the whole of space and time. And I think that this is not something exotic. I think any of us who practice have a taste of this in our practice. And I think that's why we enjoy meditation practice, and especially intensive meditation practice is really wonderful because of this. And somebody was just telling me about this on the break, of this beautiful feeling that we often feel, or sometimes feel, to a greater or lesser degree of intensity in a retreat. How the world just is, how it flows on perfectly, how nothing is separate or apart, how there's nothing to fear, no tomorrow to worry about, how everything just melts into everything else in a mutual emptiness. So the profundity of Zhaozhou's words lies in the fact that that very ordinary oak tree out in the courtyard isn't just the conventional conceptual oak tree that gives shade, drops leaves all over the lawn, and that we're going to need to hire a tree expert to fix because something's wrong with it. It needs to be trimmed. If we really appreciate the oak tree as it is, in our experience of merging with that oak tree, the world stops in its tracks and the whole world becomes the oak tree. Nothing else exists. And we are liberated, enlightened by the oak tree. Of course, maybe we have to phone up the tree expert also because, yes, the oak tree does need trimming. But, but that won't make us lose track of the real nature of the oak tree. <clears throat> now, you could view what Zhaozhou is, is talking about here as some kind of refined Zen experience, mystical, colorful, wonderful in its way, something certainly worth experiencing and thrilling to experience, but in the end, not all that relevant to the problems that we all face in our daily living. And if we identify that experience too much with a particular feeling that we have about it, the wonderful sensation that we have, the delicate spiritual resonance that we feel, and think that that's what that experience is, then maybe it is irrelevant. It's nice, but maybe it is irrelevant to our daily living. But I think that we need to view it as something more than this. By training ourselves in this truth, experiencing it again and again at various depths, at various times, practicing evoking it every day on our meditation cushions, contemplating its implications for our conduct, and day in and day out, softening our body and mind through our lived experience until we begin to inhabit the world of the oak tree as our very life, shedding day by day, month by month, year by year, our more brutal, conceptual, conditioning, conditioned approach to our lives. 
we can make the oak tree in the courtyard not just a glorious sensation we might have experienced once or several times in a retreat, but the experiential basis for a way of living. <clears throat> this question, why did Bodhidharma come from the West, is of course asked many, many times. It becomes a kind of code question. Uh, many, many dialogues uh, in which different masters uh, reply uh, to this uh, question. And one of the famous responses, one of my favorite responses, is that of Linji, Rinzai, Linji. And he's asked, what is the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the West? And he says, if there had been a meaning, he wouldn't even have been able to save himself. That's Linji's response. So, although Linji might sound here like Samuel Beckett, He's not saying uh, that the living truth of Zen is meaningless, or, or at least not exactly. Uh, people who read Beckett and, and talk about him say that Beckett is pointing to the absurdity and meaningless of, of life. And maybe I've been misreading all these years, but I always get cheered up when I read Beckett. <clears throat> I find it uplifting. And I don't find Beckett to be full of despair and hopelessness. Meaning is something that we're looking for so that we can spray it all over things like a mist and the things themselves end up getting lost in the fog. And I think we do this so that we won't have to endure their starkness. And it's not that hard to poke holes in the meanings we have so blithely settle for as coping mechanisms. But life isn't dumb and it doesn't require us to provide it with meaning. Life is eloquent. Life is its own meaning. My favorite saying of Suzuki Roshi is the world is its own magic. We don't have to gussy it up and make it great just as it is that oak tree in the courtyard is already magic. <clears throat> to appreciate the magic, we need to stop seeking for some additional meaning and let things come forward and speak to us in their true voices. When we stop bothering the oak tree, when we really let it alone, it will speak to us and it will tell us all that we need to know. When we stop bothering our friends, and ourselves with our expectations and our projections and our preconceptions and let them and ourselves step forward and actually speak, <clears throat> then we will know all we need to know. And all the extra things that we add to it produce suffering. Words do not explain. Speech does not signify. If you take up words, you're done for. If you ponder over phrases, you're lost. That's Woman's poem. One of the uh, most important themes in Zen and uh, Woman Guan that I don't think <coughs> we'll say much about today, it's a whole topic in itself, 
but it has to do with uh, Zen's view of language. Zen has a whole implied language philosophy, which seems very contemporary. You know, I mean, language philosophy is actually a development in, in Western philosophy of the 20th century. But here in the 13th century, these Chinese Zen masters seemingly had an extremely sophisticated sense of language. How did they come to that? If you do a lot of meditation, a lot of investigation of reality, I think you will end up with some thoughts about language because you'll begin to see what language is. We describe the world to ourselves in language and as you meditate, you begin to understand that process. Seeing sees seeing, hearing hears hearing, and words are talking about words. When you say the word hear, you have an experience. If we speak to one another, we do have an experience. But the experience of my saying to you, hear something, is not at all the same as you're hearing something. So it's not that words should never be spoken or used. It's that words should be understand, understood to be what they are. We are constantly describing our lives to ourselves and to one another. This is what happened to me. This is what he said. This is what she did. This is how I feel. Here's what's going on for me. When we speak this way, we are having an experience and making a communication. And this has a reality. It's important. But these words do not describe what they purport to describe. And there is no way to be a human being and think that you can escape from language or discard it. Language uh, is, a, is a vaccine made from a disease that cures the disease. If you understand words as words, you cure yourself of this confusion. And words can be antidotal to words. And isn't this what koans are all about? Using words as antidotes to words. So Wuman says, if you take up words, you're done for. Wonderful. Please do take up words. But take them up as they really are. And when you do, you'll be done for. Free of your suffering and confusion, and you'll be able to course in words and viewpoints as you must as a human being in this world, without getting caught by them. If you ponder over phrases, you're lost. Excellent. Please do ponder over phrases. Isn't that what we do in koan study? Ponder over phrases, breathing with them, making them concrete meditation objects, taking them deeply into our hearts 
and minds until we're completely lost. And we should get lost. Everybody needs to get lost. When we really lose ourselves, then we will know how to live. So that's my talk on uh, uh, the oak tree in the courtyard. Master Zhao Zhou, uh, great Zen teacher. <coughs>